Good morning, beloved. Let's turn to God's Word together in Mark chapter 2. And as you turn there, let me offer a word of prayer for us. Let's pray. Father, help us to so speak your word now and to hear your word that we get to know you. That we get to know you personally and deeper. That our lives are healed, changed, strengthened, filled. That your love would wash over us and your joy would carry us away. Teach us, O Lord, we pray, by your Spirit, every heart, every mind. Speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word, we pray, and give us understanding, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. No one is above the law. We hear that a lot in our political discussions, in our social debates, that everyone alike, rich and poor, black and white and brown and yellow, uh, male and female, old and young, uh, no one is above the law. doesn't matter their station in life. They could be the poorest pauper or they could be the most powerful president. Everyone is meant to live accountable to the law. That idea that no one is above the law is connected to something we cherish in this country and that many ch countries cherish called the rule of law. That idea can be traced at least back to the 16th century um, British Isles um, at a time of great debate about the role of kings and the law. At that point, the king was not subject to the law. The monarchy believed in the divine right of kings. The king was thought to be chosen by God in a special way. And so therefore, the king was not accountable to any earthly power like parliament but accountable to God. The king was not to be subject to the people, nor to the aristocrats, or to any other agency. They developed the phrase, rex lex, Latin meaning the king is law. As a consequence, some kings ruled like tyrants, doing whatever they wished without restraint. But in the 16th century, came along some thinkers like Samuel Rutherford. He challenged the divine rights of kings. Rutherford was a Scottish Presbyterian uh, theologian and pastor. He argued not rex lex, but lex rex, that the law is king. And with that argument came the rule of law and the idea that no one is above the law. Well, these ideas made their way across the, across the sea to the colonies in the New World, made their way to America, and these are the kinds of ideas that we would find in the American Revolution. Thomas Paine gave us the book Common Sense. And in many respects, Common Sense was um, used to stir the colonists, the colonists to rebellion in the Revolutionary War. And Paine wrote in that book, In America, the law is king. For as in absolute governments the king is law, so in free countries the law ought to be king, and there ought to be no other. So America began with a, a serious fear of the monarchy, of kings, 
of the way kings pass their power down to their offspring, and the way that would contribute to what the colonists regarded as tyranny. And the rule of law, in which everyone from people to president were subject to the laws of the land, became, in this country, a cherished ideal. So we say, no one is above the law. And that idea finds a welcome home in the cultures and the attitudes and the teachings of many churches. But whenever the history and the culture and the ideas of the country gets blended with the church, we had better stop and ask ourselves some questions. Is this idea true? Is it biblical? Should it be believed and practiced? If so, how? Our text this morning raises important questions about God's law, about our relationship to God's law, and about whether anyone is above God's law. And I think the Bible teaches us that following Jesus really is a surprising adventure. The law may not at all points be what we think it is, may not be properly understood. And if we get our relationship with the law wrong, guess what else we get wrong? Our relationship with God. It might even raise the question as to whether or not we really know God. In our text, Matthew chapter 2, verses 23, down to chapter 3, verse 6, uh, we're going to see two scenes. Now these two scenes are the last two in five scenes, going back to chapter 2, verse 1 where there's a growing conflict between Jesus and the religious people of his day, the, the Jewish scribes and Pharisees. In each of those five scenes, there's a, a question or an insinuation that kind of accuses or attacks Jesus in some way. And in each of those scenes, Jesus gives an answer. Now, our last two scenes here hang together because they both happen on the Sabbath day, and they both involve questions about what is lawful on the Sabbath. And in these interactions, what we really get a clear view of, it's not just the Sabbath, but Jesus, who he is, and how we be related to him. So look with me in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? 
but they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. What I want us to do this morning is consider what we see in these two scenes about the law, about our relationship to the law, and about whether or not we really understand who Jesus is and really follow him the way the Bible would teach us to follow him. And to do this, what I want us to do is a kind of profile of legalism. I want to show you seven things about legalism from this text. Number one, legalism judges others. Legalism judges others. There are kind of two ways we can talk about legalism. First, there is a kind of formal theological legalism. That's the idea that sinners can become right with God by sufficient obedience to God's law. Do the right things according to God's law. You earn a kind of righteousness. And based on that righteousness which you earn through obedience, you will be accepted with God. So when we hear someone say, uh, that they believe they're going to heaven because they're a good person or because they try to do the right things, what we're hearing is an everyday expression of a kind of formal theological legalism. But here's what the Bible says. The Bible flatly rejects that. The Bible says no one is justified by works of the law. No one. The Bible says if we break one law, we break the whole. So the law is like a stained glass window made up of different colored pieces of glass. And if you throw a rock through the glass and break the glass window, then even if you just broke it at one point, you really break up the whole picture that that stained glass represents. Formal theological legalism doesn't work. Well, there's a second way we can think about legalism, and that's a kind of practical, ethical Legalism. This is an approach to the Christian life that, that emphasizes the law or keeping rules as a way of living. So in practical, ethical legalism, a great deal of time, a great deal of thought and energy go into making sure that all the rules are obeyed. And a person gets a sense of satisfaction, of fulfillment, of completion, of worth based upon how well they do at keeping the rules. And that's the kind of legalism, in part, that's on display in our text this morning. And this kind of legalism distorts our relationship with God and our relationship with neighbor. This kind of legalism leads a person to, to judge others. That's what we see in verses 23 and 24. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Or skip down to chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So in the first scene, the Pharisees, they don't attack Jesus directly. They try to comfort Jesus' followers instead. They basically say, why are your boys doing that? Why are they, why are they picking corn 
uh, on the Sabbath? Why are they breaking the law? In the second scene, they don't speak to Jesus at all. They, they watch him. They're in the cut, keeping their eyes on him. Now notice this. These Pharisees are in the place of worship. They're in the synagogue in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. They're on the day of worship, the Sabbath. But what's on their mind is not God, but catching Jesus doing something that they think violates their rules. Legalism is about trapping people, catching people, blaming people, judging people. For many legalists, life is one big game of gotcha. They love to argue. They, they love to fight about their religious rules. They love to trip people up into some fault. And all I want to do in this first point is to make one observation. Surely it was the case. Surely it was the case that there was something imperfect and sinful in the Pharisees' own lives for them to be worried about. But instead, now, they are spending their time talking about what's wrong in other people's lives. This is the thing about a Pharisee. This is the thing about a legalist. They would rather judge than be judged. They would rather condemn than be contrite. They would rather reject than repent. They'd rather be the judge than the defendant. That's why judging others is so quick and instinctive for the legalists. They're thinking, oh, if there's a law and there are rules and somebody's going to be judged and somebody's going to do the judging, I might as well be the one doing the judging. It's easier to find fault with others than it is to deal with the fault in our own lives, isn't it, beloved? That's why it's easy to drift toward legalism, the kind of legalism that judges others. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus makes this very point. He tells a story there. He says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That's the mentality of a legalist. That's the mentality of a Pharisee. They think, God, I praise you, I'm not like everybody else who's so jacked up. I'm righteous. They're sinners. The Pharisee, the legalist, is self-righteous and proud, and it leads them to be condemning of others. So here's that question. Here's the question. Is there anything like that in you? Do you notice in yourself a little of this tendency? or maybe a lot of it. Legalists judge others. Number two, legalism misreads the Bible. Legalism misreads the Bible. Now the, the Pharisees in verse 24 specifically raise a question about the Sabbath, what's lawful on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is the one commandment of God that is rooted in creation itself. It's always had a special place alongside circumcision, uh, in the worship and the identity of ancient Israel. 
So when they ask about what is lawful on the Sabbath, the, the, the Pharisees seem to be thinking back to passages of the law like Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. That's the part of the Ten Commandments where God speaks to uh, the Sabbath law. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. This is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. And it seems pretty clear. The final day of the week is to be a day of Sabbath, of rest with God. No work is to be done, not by Israelites, not by their slaves, not even by their animals. The Sabbath follows God's own pattern of creation. Six days he created the world, and on the seventh day, God himself rested from his work. And in other places of the Old Testament, the Sabbath is called a, a perpetual commandment, meant to be kept by Israel uh, for all their generations. But notice what the Pharisees are doing here. I'm making the point about how legalism misreads the Bible. Notice what the Pharisees are doing. They misread the Bible by taking a single text or a single idea, a single teaching from the law as complete proof of their position. That's called proof texting. They act as if that, that is the only passage of the Bible on the subject that is relevant. Then they add to that single text, that single teaching, notice now, applications of their own, which they make into requirements for others. They're actually defining a casual walk and the plucking of a few ears of grain of corn as work. The Bible did not define that as work. The Pharisees said that that was work. Indeed, the Pharisees would develop all kinds of rules about how to keep the Sabbath. And they would make sure that, that people in Judaism obeyed those rules um, that they had come up with. So, in ancient Judaism, there are Sabbath regulations forbidding even the carrying of children, giving help to birthing animals, or the retrieval of an animal fallen into a pit. They forbid tying or loosening knots or sewing, get this, more than one stitch or writing more than one letter or walking more than 1,999 paces or steps. They had rules for everything on the Sabbath. How far you could walk, whether or not you could stitch or sew or write, whether or not you could even carry your children on the Sabbath. And here's the thing about legalism. Legalists make rules to protect their rules. They, they fence the law. Think about it this way, that, that the law is like a, a power junction, a, a box that has a lot of electrical current in it, right? So you don't want people to touch it lest they get shocked. What do you do? You got that box there, and, and we put a big sticker on the box that says something like, warning, high voltage, do not touch. Okay, that's the law. Now what the legalist does is he comes along and says, okay, that's not enough. 
that warning sign, we need a fence. So let's go out about 20 yards and let's build a fence all the way around that box and let's put on that fence, warning, do not trespass, do not touch the box, high voltage. And the legal says, that's not enough. Let's go out another 20 yards beyond that fence and let's put some signs down by the end of the road warning people no trespassing, high voltage, danger, and so on. And it all has the appearance of reason. But what it is is fencing the law. Adding rules on top of God's rule that actually wind up not being the spirit or the letter of God's rule at all. That's how a legalist reads the Bible, especially the law. But Jesus does not read the Bible like a legalist. I want you to see the brilliance of Jesus' response in verse 25. The Lord, the Lord begins by saying, Have you never read? <laughs> Have you never read is a shady way to start. We, we need a whole sermon series called Throwing Shade Like Jesus. The Lord is effectively saying, you guys are the Bible guys, but you don't seem to know what's in the Bible. That's the problem with proof texting. You ain't know one text, but you don't know how it fits with the rest of the Bible and what's taught in the rest of the Bible, how that shapes that one text you know. So you may know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But just based on John 3.16, there's a lot you don't know about God. You don't know that God is just. You don't know that God is holy. You don't know that God is judge. You don't know that God is actually angry. In fact, just based on John 3.16, there's some things you don't know about yourself. You don't know because John 3.16 doesn't say that you are a sinner and that your sin makes you hostile toward God. There are things about Jesus you don't know in John 3.16. Because John 3.16 doesn't mention the cross, doesn't mention his burial, doesn't mention his resurrection, doesn't mention that he is God the Son, not just God's Son. So if all you've got is John 3.16 as a proof text, there's a whole lot of Bible you don't know or understand. But that's how the legalist reads their Bible. For bits and pieces... And on those bits and pieces, they act like they have the whole. We build a whole system of faith and life based on it. Now, notice something else that helps us avoid legalism. Jesus did not, does not answer with another proof text from the law. Instead, Jesus moves away from the law altogether, and Jesus goes to an Old Testament book of history. He goes to a book of narrative. He goes to 1 Samuel um, chapters 20 and 21. In 1 Samuel chapters 20 and 21, Jesus, Jesus pulls out other things to help us better understand the law. And I want to suggest to you that has four implications for how we should read our Bibles if we don't want to be a legalist. Four things here. Number one, you do not establish a Christian way of life. By harping on one proof text. It takes the entire Bible to define the entire Christian life. We want the whole counsel of God. Line upon line, precept upon precept. So you want to approach your Bible with the heart and the attitude of knowing over time the entire Bible and how it fits together. Okay, That will keep you from being a legalist. Number two. The, the historical narratives of the Bible 
are as important for developing Christian doctrine and ethics as the law. At least in terms of how Jesus is reading the Bible here. The Bible story, so to speak, should, should teach us Bible doctrine and Bible living. All of Scripture is breathed out for God, and all of Scripture is profitable to us in order that we might be the men and women of God we were called to be. We might be trained in righteousness. So, so we want to read every genre of scripture, the poetry, the history, the apocalypse, the prophecy, uh, the law, the wisdom literature. We need it all because God put it all in there. And number three, we must let scripture interpret scripture. This is the analogy of faith or the, the rule of faith. We are not to read a text of the Bible and then jump over to, this is what it means to me, or this is what it means to you. We have to let the Bible tell us what the Bible means for everyone. That means comparing one passage with several other passages from around the Scripture to get a, a sense of the whole. We want to compare Scripture with Scripture and let it sort of paint out a whole picture for us. Number four, we have to read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. The New Testament controls our understanding of the Old Testament. We don't read the Bible looking backwards to the law as the final answer. We read the Bible looking forward to the gospel as the climax and the finality of, of God's revelation. Um, there's a progressive revelation that's happening across the pages of the Bible. So we want to read the Old Testament in light of the controlling, interpretive context of the New Testament. So, building your theology and life solely on the Old Testament or on a proof text is like reading the first chapter in a novel and deciding you got the whole story, you don't need to read the next rest of the novel. That's what legalists and Pharisees do. And so they don't know the whole story. That's not what people who learn to read the Bible the way Jesus does do. So, question. Do you read the Bible more like a Pharisee or more like Jesus? Do you read it searching out proof texts to substantiate your rules-based approach to life? Or do you read it letting the whole of Scripture interpret and inform each part and getting both the meaning and the spirit of the word. For that's what Jesus did. So brings us to our third thing. Legalism puts the law above man. Puts the law above man. I said a moment ago that Jesus takes him to 1 Samuel chapter 20 and 21, particularly chapter 21, verses 1 to 6. King Saul was the king. David had been chosen by God to uh, succeed Saul on the throne. Saul decided to kill David. But Saul's son, Jonathan, David's best friend, warns David 
Remember that famous chapter where he goes out and shoots the arrows and says, if I shoot the arrows beyond where you are, then that's the signal that Saul's going to try to kill you. You need to run. Don't go home. Don't collect no clothes. Don't pack your bags. Run. And that's precisely what David does. Doesn't have clothing. Doesn't have food. He's on the run when we come to 1 Samuel 21. And he comes to the place of worship, to the tabernacle. And he asks the high priest for five loaves of bread or whatever he has. And Abiathar, the high priest, says, well, I don't have any common food here. I don't have like regular food or anything to give you. All I have is the, the holy bread, the bread of presence. Now this was bread that was, according to Leviticus 24, uh, meant to be prepared in a certain way. And it was bread that would be baked uh, in 12 loaves, and they would be stacked on the golden table before God uh, in the tabernacle. Uh, and, and that bread would be there from one Sabbath to the next Sabbath for seven days. And then on the seventh day, they would bring in the fresh bread, the old bread would be taken, and the priests would eat that bread in the tabernacle. That would be food for the priests. Nobody else was supposed to eat this bread. And this bread wasn't supposed to be eaten any place other than in the holy place, in the tabernacle. That's what the law required. Notice this now, looking at, at those verses, 25 and 26. Nearly everything that happens in 1 Samuel 21, and in Jesus' summary here, violates God's law. David entered the house of God, though he was not a priest and wasn't supposed to. He ate the bread of the presence, though he was not a priest and wasn't supposed to. And he gave it to the men who were on the run with him, even though they too were not holy, they were not priests, and they were not supposed to, to eat this bread. I mean, the way Jesus tells the story, David's actions sound a lot like Adam and Eve. Do you remember? Eve saw the tree, saw the fruit that it was delightful, good for eating. She took it, ate it, and gave it to Adam to eat also. David sees the bread, he takes the bread, he eats the bread, and he goes out and gives it to others to eat also. Now, here's the thing. In a legalistic expectation of, of the law, in the reading of the law, in a legalistic expectation of God, the legalist would expect God to judge David for breaking the law because the legalist believes that the law is king, but the law is above man. That's where the Pharisees put the law, above man. But the surprise in this text is that the great king David is not judged, but honored. And David is held blameless before God. Nobody reads 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 to 6, and they come away charging David with sin or breaking the Sabbath. No, Jesus explains why this is the case in verse 27. Look there. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Pharisees had it completely backwards. Their relationship with the law was completely upside down. They served the Sabbath, and as a result, the Sabbath became their master and no longer a source of rest. Observing the Sabbath was itself a whole bunch of work. It was an exercise in obeying rules rather than being refreshed with the, with the worship and the rest of God. And beloved, this is still a problem. 
this temptation to legalism, and even the specific focus on the Sabbath is tripping people up all over the place. I mean, from time to time in religious history, different groups have emerged on the scene who made a big deal out of the Sabbath and uh, lost sight of Jesus and the, and the purpose of the Sabbath. So we can start right here in our text with the strict religious Jews of Jesus' day. We see how they, they lost their way in the Bible and their understanding of the Bible. They, they didn't understand that the Sabbath was meant to serve man, not man serve the Sabbath. Or in the 1600s, there are groups called Seven-Day Baptists. It starts in England, comes to the New World in the 1700s, early 1800s. And the Seventh-day Baptists break away from other Baptist churches in order, again, to put necessity, emphasis on the necessity of, of keeping the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath. Or we've got Seventh-day Adventists, who, following a man named Miller in the mid-1800s, um, sort of usher in a, a whole new movement of making the Sabbath a, a big deal. They, they call Protestant Christians like us Sunday keepers rather than Sabbath keepers. They even teach that worshiping on, the, on Sunday is the mark of the beast in Revelation. What Adventists do not understand is that the Sabbath commandment is a part of the Old Covenant with the people of Israel. That covenant and its requirements was never established to create a relationship between Gentiles and God. It was for Israel. And the church's rest comes not from the seventh day and ceasing from physical labor. The church's rest comes from Christ having finished the redemptive work of God and resting by faith in him, according to Hebrews chapter 4. Or come on down a little closer to our day. The latest cult group would be any variety of black Hebrew Israelite groups. They too make a big deal of the Sabbath day and a big deal of the Old Testament law, believing themselves to be Jews. We do not understand them to be right. What they do not understand is that A, African Americans are not Jews. B, Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath law for us. And C, by returning to the law, they make Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and in the resurrection of no profit to themselves, according to verse, uh, Galatians chapter 5. They have fallen from grace, Galatians 5. And Christ is of no advantage to them. It is a false gospel. Each one of these groups are trying to disqualify the Christian by bringing them back into slavery to the law. But the biblical Christian, their attitude towards the Sabbath is best summed up in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Jesus didn't let the Pharisees put the law over man to judge man. Jesus defined the law as something that serves humanity's well-being. 
Don't let anyone judge you with Sabbath laws. Don't let anyone put the law over you. And so control you by the law. That's, that's not for your advantage, according to Jesus. Instead, recognize that the law was given by God to bless your life. To fulfill your life. To refresh your life. And in that way, the law serves man, not the other way around. This is surprising. It's not what religious folks who like their rules expect. It is precisely what Jesus says. And following Jesus takes us into some understandings and territories that have been unfamiliar to us. He undoes all of that legalism so that he can give us freedom. So that he can give us joy. So that the true purposes of God's law are achieved in our lives as we follow him by faith. Which brings us to a fourth thing. Legalism also puts the law, or tries to, above God. Above God. See, the legalist is the, the, the ultimate one to say, no one is above the law, even, even God. So, so they not only misunderstood the relationship between the Sabbath of God and the people of God, they also misunderstood the relationship between the Sabbath and the Messiah. So when Jesus tells the story of King David, it is not, it is not, it is not so that he can say, hey, look, there's an exception, there's an exception to the law. Uh, we're going to claim that exception, cut us some slack. That's not what he's doing here. Jesus tells this story as a way of comparing himself to David as the promised king that Israel was waiting for. David was a commercial for Jesus. David was a commercial for the Messiah. The Pharisees were meant to see that, that Jesus was that Messiah. So in Mark chapter 2, uh, uh, there's Jesus, the greater David, the son of David, the long-awaited Messiah, eating with his followers on the Sabbath, the way David did. They were to look to that great earthly king, David, to see through him to the greatest long-awaited king, Jesus. Now, if that comparison wasn't clear enough, notice what Jesus says in verse 28. He refers to himself as the Son of Man, a title that he used early in chapter 2, around verses 10 or 11 or so, when he healed the paralyzed man. And he says, the Son of Man, back there, has authority to forgive sin. Now he uses that title, Son of Man, again in verse 28. And you'll recall that that title goes all the way back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel has a vision of one like the Son of Man who goes to God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and receives from God glory and dominion and power and honor, and all the nations gather to worship him. It was a prophetic vision of the coming Messiah. So when Jesus now reaches back and grabs that title, Son of Man, he is defining for us what kind of son of God he is, what kind of Messiah that he is. In chapter 2, around verses 10 and 11, he's the kind of son of man who has authority to forgive sins. Here now, he's the kind of son of man, notice, he has authority over the law, over the Sabbath. He says he is Lord 
over the Sabbath. That's a stunning claim to being God. Only God can claim to be Lord over God's commands. And Jesus does that right here as plain as day. He's the Lord of Sabbath, which means he's the Lord over the law. He's the Lord over God's word. He is not under the Sabbath, but over the Sabbath. And, and that's why he can say in verse 27, I say to you that the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He has the authority to say that. He has the authority to do that and to teach us the true meaning of the law. He's the one who put the Sabbath in place. It is his commandment. And he is greater and his commandment. He is consistent with his commandment, but he is greater than it. He is above the law. Religion is something we should practice, not worship. These religious Jews made an idol of their religious rules. They were so focused on serving their religious rules that they did not recognize when their God was in their presence, even though he told them so. In the United States, we believe in the rule of law, or we used to. We believe that all our leaders are under the law, even if they are lawmakers, or we used to. So that in the U.S., we say, again, no one is above the law. But that's not, I hope you see, a saying and a perspective that fits very comfortably with the kingdom of God. The U.S. is not the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, there is a king who gives the law and who is above the law. He is, as I said, entirely consistent with the law and even fulfills the law. But he is also Lord over that law. So in the kingdom of God, it is not Lex Rex, but Rex Lex. The king, Jesus, is law. And that's why we must submit to him. That's why we must know him. And that's why we must understand that the function of the law is not to point to itself, but to point to him. To take us by the hand like little school children, like a tutor, and lead us to Christ. The problem with breaking the, the Sabbath law is not simply that we forfeited some rest. The problem with breaking the Sabbath law is that we forfeited rest with God, a relationship with Him, refreshment from fellowship with Him, which He offers us through His Son. But the legalist puts the law over God's head. And therefore the legalist never quite sees God. Which brings us to a fifth thing. These next couple are more quick. Legalism hardens the heart. Look with me down in Mark chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. This is that second scene where Jesus meets the man with the withered hand in the synagogue. And just think for a moment about that man's embodied life. He's lost the capacity of at least that hand. Uh, depending on uh, certain circumstances, he, he might have been regarded as unclean. He would have had his life prospects 
significantly and materially impacted by that, by that disability. In Mark chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus sees this man. In verse 2, the Pharisees see Jesus, and they are wondering if Jesus is going to do something to break the Sabbath in their view. Will he heal this man? So Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to him, to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Verse 4 says, but they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieve at their hardness of heart. See that scene there. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're feeling so self-righteous, so proud. They're feeling so zealous for their tradition and their understanding of the law. They, they have one in their midst who is in fact the Lord of the Sabbath. And they're watching him to trap him. And Jesus knows it. And there's this man with his withered hand who obviously needs compassion. And, and Jesus Knowing that they're trying to trap him, knowing what they're thinking, knowing their hearts, Jesus calls the man over to him, and Jesus heals the man. Or he asks the question first, what should we be doing on the Sabbath? Should we be healing and giving life, or, or should we be harming and killing? Now that's a softball question, right? That, that's the kind of question in... In, in, in kindergarten and children's church where all of us should say, you know, give life. All of us should say, do good. But you see the, you see the Pharisee there. Rather than risk a correct answer, an obvious answer, and feel themselves now in a trap themselves, feel conviction, they remain silent. The biggest victim of legalism is the legalists. They do not live by grace, so they do not experience grace. These Pharisees look at a man in significant physical need. Are they moved with compassion? No. Even when Jesus confronts them with a question designed to elicit a, a, a clear, proper response and elicit compassion, are they so moved? Since they spend all their time setting traps for others, they interpret this question as a trap for themselves. And rather than attempt, as I said a moment ago, an answer um, that would be right, they choose silence over compassion. Sometimes our silence reveals more about our hearts than our words. We've silent in the face of suffering. We're closer to the Pharisees than we are Jesus. For the Sabbath is made for good and made for life. But they won't admit it. Well, they don't acknowledge it because they, that would damage their carefully crafted self-righteous image. So, beloved, if we trust our righteousness, we will harden ourselves in unrighteousness. Give it, give it time. And a, and a young life that sucks the milk of self-righteousness and religious pride will become a bitter old life harsh in its denials of mercy. If you see any hardness in your own heart, God give me grace that if I see any hardness in my heart, we should, 
ask ourselves at least one question. Does this come from a legalistic tendency in me? You look around at people in need and you feel your heart closing. Where does that come from? Does it come from Jesus? Or does it come from some strain of legalism? And what will we do? Will we hear Jesus' question about the Sabbath? Will we hear it and answer and repent? Or will we harden our hearts? It's going to be a lot of opportunity for religious people to be repenting in communities of significant need. I wonder if we are habitually repenting our legalism. Brings us to a next point here, number six. Legalism angers God. That's what we see in verse five. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. You read that and you have to wonder, how can something so religious make God so angry? How can people so intent on obeying God's law wind up vexing God, grieving Him, making Him angry? We know there are very little parts of the Bible, very few parts of the Bible that tell us directly what Jesus' internal emotional state is. And usually when it does, it tells us about His compassion. But here now, it's striking. He looks around at them. Let your mind sort of watch that scene of Jesus in the middle of the synagogue with that withered man healing his hand, taking a moment just to, just to eyeball the room, to look around at all those religious folks wrapped in their shrouds and their phylacteries for prayer, doing all their religious things. And the Savior is grieved and angry. I wonder how many professing Christians anger Jesus this way because we are indifferent to suffering and the needs around us. I wonder how many of us Jesus would look at with grief because he sees us as hard-hearted while we see ourselves as religiously righteous. I wonder how many of us would think that God is the one in the wrong for being so hard on us, angry with us, while we were doing our best to keep religious rules. This is the other thing about a hard heart. It is deceptive. So deceptive that we could blame God for correcting us rather than submit to God when we need correcting. That we can see people in greater need than ourselves, close our hearts to them, and think we're right. That's deception. And when it is fueled by religious self-righteousness, it makes Jesus angry. 
which brings us to a final thing. Legalism destroys. You see it there in verse 6? They leave the synagogue. They go click up with the Hellenists. Now this is how you know these folks have, have lost the plot. Because remember, the Pharisees are the Bible Jews. They're the ones who believe in the supernatural miracles. They believe in the sovereignty of God. Uh, they believe in the promise of a resurrection. These are the Bible guys, right? They do not like the Hellenists because the Hellenists are the Jews who say, hey, listen, the way forward is for us to become more and more Greek and Roman. The Pharisees are like, no, 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 we need to remain Jewish. So they leave the synagogue on a day of worship and they go find the Hellenists, which they despise, and together they say, you know what, we've got one common enemy, this Jesus. We need to destroy him. But you know who will actually be destroyed? It's the legalistic Pharisees. They will destroy their own hope of salvation. They will destroy their own hope of entering God's kingdom. Their religious hard hearts will keep them from the soft heart of God. Legalism ends in hell, beloved. It's a false gospel. It's not a gospel at all. We contribute nothing to our salvation except our sin. We have to repent even of our righteousness. We have to turn from our desire and tendency to justify ourselves. Beloved, sometimes it's not our sins that stop us from coming to Jesus. It's our goodness, or at least our belief in our own goodness. And so we have to confess that for the unbelief it is and repent of it lest we finish this life with a hard heart and we meet an angry God in judgment. Our goodness will not save us. Only Jesus can. The one who restores withered hands, he's the one who restores withered hearts. The one who is Lord over the Sabbath is also Lord over man. He is the one with power and authority to forgive our sins and to declare us righteous, not by rules that we have kept, but by faith that we have placed in him. So, beloved, this morning, I wonder if you have to repent of your own righteousness. I wonder if you see that we must turn not just from our sin. We must turn from that. But we also must return. We must turn from our delusions of any goodness that would satisfy God's holy standard. Indeed, the truth of the matter is, all the law could ever do because we are sinners is condemn us. We will be judged by the law. So we deceive ourselves if we think we're going to take the law in hand and judge others. That same law will be condemning us. But we fail it in a thousand ways. Because we are not perfect as our God is. And yet that's his standard for us. So beloved, if you're with us this morning, uh, I wonder if you can see that, that you have a problem with God if you're not a Christian. That God is angry about your sin, and that if you pretend to be righteous apart from Him, that angers Him too. 
that what makes God glad is you confessing your sin and repenting of it. And you turning to his son, Jesus Christ, the very Jesus we've been considering in this text, and putting your faith in him. Actually putting your trust in him for his righteousness. See, he was perfect. He perfectly obeyed the law. He perfectly fulfilled the law. Not the law as it was twisted by Pharisees, but the law as it was really intended. He fulfilled it, every bit of it. So that now the, the, the righteous requirements of God are satisfied through his son. And all of those benefits that come from his righteous life become ours through faith in him. You do need righteousness. That, that instinct is correct, but you can't get it by your own works. That instinct is wrong. So what you want to do is marry that right instinct for righteousness with the right response that gets it. That's faith in Jesus, the crucified, buried, and resurrected Savior of the world, who is Lord of life, Lord of the law, and he is your Lord too. You will either acknowledge him as your Lord and be saved, or you will deny him as your Lord and be judged. Escape the judgment to come. Flee from legalism. Turn to God for his grace and forgiveness, which he gives freely through Jesus his Son. Put your faith in him and follow him, and you will be joined with the one who is above the law, who satisfies the law, who saves you apart from works of the law through faith in him. And you will never need to worry about condemnation because you will be righteous through faith in Jesus. Trust in him and follow him. And Christian, I hope you see that we are never quite finished repenting of self-righteousness and pride, and delusions of how good we are. We still ratchet. I wonder if we still know it. I wonder if we are raising our hands and saying amen and asking the Lord to be merciful to us so we might be merciful to others. I pray and trust and hope we are by God's grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the Lord of life, the ruler of all things, with authority over all things. And we praise you as the Savior who gave yourself as a ransom for our sins and was raised from the grave for our salvation. And we thank you, O Lord, that we get to hear that good news in the preached word. We get to see that good news uh, in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And we ask, O Lord, that you would feed our souls, Lord, our hungry souls, with more of your love, more of your grace, more of your mercy. Press your word into our hearts, O Lord. Teach us to live as we ought to live, by faith, not by sight, trusting the righteousness of Christ and not our own. We pray this, O Lord, in Jesus' name.